You're listening to The Show on the Road, a new podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and musicians from around the world. My name is Zach Lubitin. This week on the show, my conversation with a multi-talented songwriter, singer, guitar slinger, and activist who may just be making the most powerful protest music of our times, B. Beeman. Sometimes someone comes along who scratches your exact sonic itch, who cuts through the self-centered, angsty folk singer preening pap and actually starts trying to do something about our fractured society and understand it for real. For me, finding B. Beeman's records recently has been a joyful revelation of sorts and an extreme learning experience, too. He rails about our broken immigration policies. He croons about our mental health system. He sings about the continued fight for women's rights, voter suppression, and that's just the first few songs of his newest record. And somehow, he's not preaching at you while he's doing it. He's putting a stunned smile on your face as you sing along with renewed faith in our democratic process and freedom of speech. Okay, look, he's not the first one to do this. Any half-cocked folk music fan knows that Woody Guthrie wrote a powerful message on his guitar in 1941 that said in bold black letters, This machine kills fascists. Back then, the world was beginning to drown under a bloody wave of brutal totalitarian regimes. And while to most, it would seem that America would always be the shining star of freedom and economic opportunity, artists like Guthrie knew that America would never outshake the creeping sickness of right-wing populism, racism, and economic slavery without sharp-minded and catchy-as-hell dissent. And like the sly-singing jesters in Shakespearean courts before them, it was up to roving artists like Guthrie and Dylan to hold their society accountable, to speak truth to power with their pen and their voice and their guitar. It may seem unlikely that a bespectacled songwriter of Sri Lankan descent would be the one to stand up for what makes America truly great. But here it is. For much of our crazy 21st century, B. Beeman has been diligently crafting poetic, protesty earworms with his masterful guitar work and fuzzed-out harmonies, and all along the way gaining some powerful friends and fans, like the late Chris Cornell, who had B. sing with him each night on a tour a few years back. His newest project is called Peace of Mind, and B is releasing the work week by week as an interactive political podcast album. It may be among the most ambitious and bold ways to release music I've seen in some time. Why didn't I think of that? Anyway, I'm so glad that he had me over to his house in LA, and uh, after we dodged some of the dinosaur toys that were strewn about the house, he has a young kid, we were able to talk in his back uh, shed studio. And let's get to it right now. Introduce yourself to the radio audience. Yeah, my name is B. Beeman. I'm a singer-songwriter, and uh, yeah, that pretty much sums me up. How long have you been in California? Um, I got to California in like 99, 2000. Wow, that sounds wild. 1899. Back in the day. <laughs> and you were raised in St. Louis I'm area? from St. Louis, yeah. yeah. Just outside the city, like west of... As you can tell by my Oakland A's hat, I'm from St. Louis. No, I just... I, I lived in the Bay Area for a long time, um, so that's why I got the A's hat on, which no one can see, so why are we talking about that? But uh, I'm from St. Louis, uh, born and raised, and then I moved out, out to the West Coast, to the Bay Area, uh, partly because that was the port of entry for my parents uh, from Sri Lanka. So San Jose, California is where they set up roots at first, and then 
eventually made it out to um, St. Louis, Chicago, then St. Louis. Yeah, so you're releasing a, your new record in a pretty innovative way as a sort of intellectually investigatory podcast yeah. where you're talking to scientists and <laughs> authors and <laughs> policymakers yeah. uh, and then sort of making your songs come to life yeah. uh, through these different voices and ideas. Um, and I, I did find it interesting that that, that, that the, I think the last song you just <coughs> put out, Excuse the uh, Ain't Nobody's Gonna Stop Us. Can't nobody stop. Can, yeah. yeah. That's okay. Um, everyone's like, well, it's clearly about Trump. You know, it's <laughs> a dictatorship, you know, yeah. forming, you know, right in front of our eyes. Yeah. And you're like, well, actually, <laughs> it's not. Yeah. Wrote it in 2009 yeah. about the Sri I wrote Lankan it ab- dictator. I wrote it about a, a more competent dictator, I guess you could say, who got his shit done, which was terrible, by the way, by getting his shit done. But, um, yeah, Trump can't seem to get out of his own way sometimes. But, yeah, I wrote this song. It's about a dictator. It's not a would-be wannabe. It's like literally kind of a dictator, authoritarian um, uh, actor. And, yeah, it, it's 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 Sri Lanka. It's about the Sri Lankan president. My parents are from Sri Lanka, and we are the, the minor, ethnic minority there. So Tamil? Tamil, yeah. Um, you probably said that better than I usually say. <laughs> I say it like I'm from St. Louis. Tamil? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, there's like a th, Tamil. I still have people saying I never ever is there say a ta- it. Is there a community here in L.A.? Um, in L.A.? There's, I know quite a few people, but not like a neighborhood or something. Like It's not like a little Tokyo or something like that. Um, but I do know quite a few people, but uh, just like anything in L.A., almost anything in L.A., other than like Caribbean people, people from the Caribbean are, is like, there's everyone here. Were your folks musical? Um, no, not real. Like they didn't play instruments. The only thing I would say is my like. I remember my mom singing, humming little things when she was in a good mood, like doing things around the house. Um, humming what? I have no idea. It's like some song that doesn't exist. What is what is Sri Lankan music? Like? I don't really know. You'll have to. You'll, you'll are there f- records that made? There's. It I mean, there's the a journey. There's a lot of stuff that's from films that uh, is like classic music. That has come from films, not from radio necessarily, but but from the the silver screen and um. But what she was singing is just like hmm, da, 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 whatever, just like la da da stuff, and but really n- nothing much. My dad would listen to uh, Clue one hundred three K L O U one hundred three point three in St. Louis. Is that all detective music? <laughs> Good one. <laughs> no. Um, it's actually oldies music, and there's like oldies one oh three point that thing, right? Yeah, they, used to, they don't do that anymore. But um, so I'd listen to Credence and Tina Turner, Chuck Berry, all this oldies Beach Boys and stuff like that. And um, but that, and then my dad would listen to NPR the rest of the time. So like that wasn't very. Other than that, not too musical. So a lot of the discovery was was through my brother, who's older, a few years older, and his friends. And you know, that was like the '90s. So grunge and stuff was was big and i was a guitar player at that you know since i was seven so i took to that quite a bit all that seattle stuff who who inspired you to start writing songs um probably dylan i guess i don't know why i guess dylan <laughs> i mean it's or rage like i write songs like a singer songwriter might but i also like i also grew up listening to heavy guitar riffologists I guess you could call them nobody calls them that but um like Jimmy Page and like Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine and they're just like people who 
shit riffs, I guess you could say. Nobody says that either. But somebody who just creates riffs a lot, and that's part of how I write songs sometimes, where it's certainly not like I sit at the piano and I write certain things. Sometimes I might do that, but... Do you have a group of people who play around you, or you mostly record stuff yourself? I, I mostly record stuff myself. Um, I'm a new transplant to L.A., so... I moved from the Bay Area. I had a lab, uh, played with some folks up there. So I just moved somewhat recently. So since I've been down here, I have it's been slower going, I guess you could say. But I'd love to play. I've just been, since I got here, I've worked on the album. I thought, ah, oh, done with the album. I, I can relax, and now I can go tour and, and push the album out. And it's like... You do have a small child. I do have a small child. Um, it probably so, <laughs> needs you very much. <laughs> yeah, I love being home for, with the kid. It's, and that's great. And... Uh, but then the podcast idea came about, and it's it's not like making an album at all. It's like making a movie. It feels like, and uh, but luckily I'm capable in in, uh, in my computer at editing audio and all that stuff. So it's it's not like making a movie at all for me. That would be incredibly nerve wracking and difficult. But I have some control. Well, there is a cinematic uh, breath to this, you mm-hmm. know, where you're covering immigration, voter suppression, mental health, mm-hmm. you know, and you're talking to Dave Edgers and, mm-hmm. you know, all these people who are really high, high level intellects mm-hmm. that can kind of really tell us what's happening in our reality yeah. right now. And sometimes uh, it's cool to have songs offset with yeah. things that can really tell us what's going on because people, A, don't listen to lyrics. A lot of times, I find. But <laughs> what? When, but what the? What when, am I wasting when, my time? On? When people actually have a little insight to go with the lyrics, it like opens up this whole world to them. Mm-hmm. You know? Can it's, you talk about one your recent episode that came out? Um, yeah, sure. Um, well, one just came out like literally today, so I was like busting my ass last night and this morning getting out. Um, and that one, the most recent one. You you referenced you referenced one about a dictatorship and democracy. Um, that was episode two. Episode three just came out, and episode three is about voter suppression. And um, I spoke with Dale Ho, and Dale Ho is the lead attorney for uh, the ACLU in their voting rights. And their is it, he's sorry, maybe you could cut this together better. Uh, Dale Ho is the leading attorney for their um, voting rights their voting rights project at the ACLU. And um, so he's in all these cases you might hear about on the news, like, oh, Chris Kobach in Kansas is trying to strip voters of their um, ability to register or even vote. And he's the one cross-examining him and grilling Chris Kobach as to what is your evidence, all this stuff. So um, and it gets dense. It certainly gets dense. But uh, but there is a cinematic quality to it. Or I try to add that to it with. Um, stems from from my new record and you know kind of a deconstruction of the song throughout the episode and maybe you don't know what that is but by the end of the episode I kind of explain what the song's about I tell you how I wrote it and what's the song called oh the song is called Eeny Meeny so it's like it's just, yeah. give me the first verse um I, well one of the lines is careful what you say you never know who's listening Alexa's got a mind its own the town that I grew up in is only now confronting all that rotten flesh and bone. Those are the ones What's I can the remember. Course? The chorus is Eeny Meeny. Or no, the chorus is Gerrymander, Jerry Curl, Flex Your Wallet, Rule the World, Catch a Tiger by the Toe, If He Hollers, Let Him Vote. Let Him Vote. Let Him Vote. So Eeny Meeny 
was this song. Obviously, everybody knows Eeny Meeny, but it has this 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 history of use instead of the word tiger, a much naughtier word was used. The N word was used, um, and it was a racist thing that was going on. So I tied that in a little bit in that voter suppression has to do with disenfranchising people of color most of the time. And so I didn't, you know, I just referenced that song a little bit um, and kind of riffed off of that uh, to kind of get get my point across. Um, I think your your voice in these songs is really like scratching a particular itch for me right now. Oh, yeah. Of this sort of biting but not bitter. Commentary. And commentary where you yeah. can kind of really get to the point but also have a bit of a smile mm-hmm. too, you know, mm-hmm. where there's a playfulness that I think uh, yeah. lets us kind of get in and enjoy it and mm-hmm. not just be like lectured. Yeah, I'm I think super that's, sensitive. About that's that. the, the kind of problem a lot of times when you hear people trying to, you know, get people to mobilize and get people to be active. It feels like your teacher telling you to do your homework. Right. Yeah, no. and a lot of times the stuff that actually works, it feels like when people get elected is that it's cool to do it and it's kind of fun to be involved. Yeah. And it maybe is stupid that that has to be how it works for a massive well, group is, of people. It just is, yeah. But it's like, it's like organic food <laughs> was like an expensive, like hippie thing. And all of a sudden it was like, well, yeah, you should just maybe eat better food. You know, it just becomes, becomes like a thing that you should do. Yeah. You know? Well, I, I definitely, like it is dense. Like I said, and if I just, if it was just a conversation podcast, no music, a lot of people are ADD. I mean, I wouldn't be able to pay attention some of the times. But we comb through the scripts of, of our interviews, and there's these mic drop moments, kind of like where somebody says something great. And I'm like, okay, music needs to drop there. There's an energy boost. And you kind of like, it just flows. I don't know. You just kind of, it kind of gets into this. When it's a good episode, it's like a thing called a flow state. Do you know that is? Like mm-hmm. prime, you're primed for performance of some kind. Anyway, that has nothing to do with this. But it's like when you're listening to it, just all flows and you're not like bored or missing anything. You're just kind of everything is the music lifts it up when it needs to be lifted up and then it brings it down when it needs to. Um, but it's it's dense and, and the sound design is meant to be uh, enjoyed and, you know, not that's the the sugar with the medicine, I guess you could say, you know, it's just it's to make people enjoy themselves while they're listening to it and not feel like a le- like a college lecture which it kind of would sometimes um because there's people who are experts at their field and they're kind of like recounting what's going on and there's people who are storytellers the storytellers are just engaging sometimes no matter what but sometimes the people who are just kind of saying what's going on you can get lost in it and so the music helps usher you through it yeah and, and this isn't a new thing for you i mean you've been kind of covering some pretty dark you know, political yeah. subjects for most of your yeah. recording career, right? The song I was listening to on the way over here, Up in Arms, yeah. kind of, you know, it's like this deja vu of the civil rights movement yeah. having to renew itself mm-hmm. every generation yeah. and the sort of just weariness of that fact, yeah. you know, like, are we, we have to do this again, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And almost like, who's going to be our Martin Luther King and Malcolm yeah. X now? You yeah. Know? I, you, you never know. Um, it's serious, but it's lighthearted at the same time. And that, that's like, that's my MO. Like it's, I mean, you, you just said a song that has very little of that lightheartedness. That's Up in Arms is a heavy song and it's just kind of tough, a sad song almost. But 
most of the time it's I'm talking about serious subjects and then but I don't like to beat people over the head with it. I like I like the way Chris Rock approaches politics. I like the way George Carlin approaches politics. I like the way a number of musicians have done it, but I'm a little bit sillier than some of like well, it's the, Dylan or, or it's U2. It's the Shakespearean sort of trickster <laughs> touchstone, right, yeah. who actually has the balls to question power, where most <laughs> people are sort of like, well, let's keep it to ourselves, yeah. you know, and then the kind of trickster who can make people laugh but also punch them in the gut to get them to change I mean, their minds, a, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's, ideally that's what I'm doing. Uh, I hope that's what I'm doing. I It's taken a lifetime to get to to this sort of where I am, where I can combine things that are serious and silly and it makes sense. Like, I, I don't know. It's, it, as you know, you're a songwriter, you've like trial and error and you know when something doesn't work and you know when something's not you or, or it's not right. And same, well, I, same thing. I, I, I make, I only keep like a fourth of what I write. Right. I think that this last election has sort of, definitely open certain people's minds in a way that is good, but also feels like there's this need for a protest song, but that there hasn't been like the hit protest song. Well, I know? want there to be one, but I don't, I, part of this podcast thing was like, I feel like no one does feel like they need that protest song. I feel like yeah. there's not a, it's not the sixties and not everybody's being drafted or you know, right. potentially drafted. So it's not, always personal like yeah it's on twitter but you put your phone down like that's the way but so that was part of the reason for making the podcast was was me realizing kind of that me just writing a protest album kind of wasn't good enough a little bit at this point in time which is sad slightly but whatever you just adapt and and i thought there's a great opportunity and and part of it is like i mean you guys must have over the years, met so many different people, like not just musicians, whatever they are, you know, um, and from all walks of life, creatives and, and intellectuals and writers or whatever. And so I kind of like used my whatever 15 years of, of experience in, in making relationships with people to call on to some of my friends like Dave Eggers. And so it was a unique opportunity. I, I like... I don't know that anybody else could do it. I don't know that I would be able to do it in another time. I like it's like the right time. The album is very has obviously I'm I'm a political person in a way, but the album would not be the same if Trump was not a pre- our president. It's that was a, an earthquake in America basically. So um so that was it's like a perfect storm thing. Podcasts are are crazy popular right now, so and news and and society and culture podcasts are really big. So, so the first episode of, of my podcast is all about how the madness of our times. And one of the stories is is, is a guy, Glenn Washington, a podcaster. And uh, he talks about how he can't talk to his mother. And she's like a Trump fan and he's absolutely not. And just this chasm but across from a table. He's from Michigan. Right? He's from yeah. Michigan. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, and I was like, yeah, I have that too. You know how many millions of people? You have that too. I was like, this is, like, I've gotten so many responses after that first episode because it was like, it's touching. I mean, it's like, yeah. Like, I was like when he told me that in that conversation that I can't even talk to my mom. We can't agree on facts. We can't agree what this is and all this stuff. It's like, because she's being talked into one ear and she doesn't listen to me. She listens to her TV, basically. And I was like, yeah. I was like, in that moment, when I was talking, I was like, 
I have that too. And then like it went from there. And I was just like, in that moment, I was like, you know how many millions of people in America, 50 million probably feel that way with somebody in their family. And it's not somebody you can ignore. It's somebody you, you love, you care about, but you fucking hate at the same time sometimes. Do you feel a bit squeamish with your parents about questioning this system that you've been raised in, you know, um, in this country? That's sort of, you know, because I know there's a lot of friends who the parents are first generation mm-hmm. and it's like they're super happy to be here yeah. and to be given the opportunity to succeed in this country. Yeah. And it's like, why aren't you more appreciative yeah, of yeah. all these things that we Don't have? Don't do that. You know? Just put your head down and all Yeah, that it's stuff. like, like, come on. I I mean, they've gotten used to it. I guess this is my personality. A bit of a smart ass my whole life. Um, not that smart, but a smart ass. Um, and they've gotten used to it. My brother's absolutely not like that. He's more of a good boy. What, is um, it, what does he do? He's, uh, he's a lawyer. He's <laughs> a good job. <laughs> And um, making the real money, yeah. And but they're they're very socially liberal. No arranged marriage, which is what the traditional tradition is. No talk of that ever in our in our life. Did they actually fall in love, your folks? I don't know. <laughs> they <laughs> you love each other. <laughs> they love each other. Yeah. I don't want to fall in love. It's like yeah. a different thing. It's like when you fall in love with somebody, it's like lust mixed with. Emotion and stuff. No, but like their generation, it was either probably you choose love or you choose what your parents yeah, yeah. want for you, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I never asked them, are they in love? Because no, it's like, like a weird thing. How do thing. they meet? Well, I mean, if you want to get into the arranged marriage stuff, um, it wasn't it wasn't Borat style arranged marriage. Uh, it, was, it was much more civil, in, but it's a patriarchal kind of society in a lot of ways. Out, out, outwardly patriarchal. In homes, it's matriarchal. But... Um, so my, my dad's father, my tata is what he called him, my grandpa, worked with my mom's brother, her older brother, and they basically chit-chatted, this is what you do, I guess. You go, oh, it's like Fiddler on the Roof, basically, where it's like matchmaker. Um, and so they got, it to, got together. But, I, I mean, I think, I'm not sure if they had, like, a choice mm. because especially now nowadays, People have choices. They can say, no, I don't want to marry this person. Or you get you date kind of for a second. Um, I don't know that story fully well, like how they met. But I know, as it is so often with women who enter arranged marriage, they did not like it at first. And not because she didn't like my dad. She just, the situation was, you're like, okay, I'm going to go with you. I don't fucking know who you are, kind of. That's um, awkward. It's awkward. And so... And I've heard that story so many times, not just in South Asian people, but people get arranged marriages all over the place. But it's it's certainly hard. I mean, there's the male-female dynamic is certainly way different. Um, men are offered a lot more. Was your mom running, running the house when you were growing up? Yeah, I mean, she was stricter. My dad was a lot looser and let me, like, watch bad TV and, like, let me do things. My mom was like strict she did not like that stuff but they're both very cool about music they knew I loved it more than basically anything else and so they weren't like they didn't hate on it and so um, I was lucky in that way I've heard a lot of people who parents would not allow that to happen they would be like no you're gonna go and graduate and get a become a doctor or become a lawyer all this the engineer but they didn't they didn't push it and but not that they don't worry constantly <laughs> just like, how's it going? Yeah, um, but 
the freedom of speech thing was like I don't know like they were they were pretty loose with us growing up overall in terms of what we did with our outside of school and I was watching a lot of comedy I was listening to Chris Rock like I said or or Carlin or Richard Pryor and um, Seinfeld whatever any comedy I could get my hands on because I didn't music wasn't a thing like I was a good I played guitar but I was like a teenager and I wasn't that good I was like fine I was better and better and better but when did you realize you could sing when I was 20 I started playing guitar when That's I was pretty late late well I was shy I was seven when I played guitar and I was like duck walking around the house and shit but uh <laughs> you have a pretty booming like unshy yeah now style. yeah but before I was like whatever like under my breath singing it and um but then I think in college, I just, I was roommates with some musicians and, um, where'd you go? UC Santa Cruz. Banana slugs. Banana slugs. And so I was listening, I was paying attention to a lot of comedy and some of those comedians were just not political at all. Seinfeld and stuff like that, or before he was disgraced, Louis CK, but Chris Rock and how he, he's like the master kind of, in my opinion, at blending politics with comedy. I don't think anybody did it to a pop cult to infiltrate pop culture that way. And so that's like a huge something I always keep in my head a little bit. Um but then musically I like rage against the machine in terms of politics and people who exercise free speech in mm-hmm. that first amendment right. And so I always looked up to those people. I it was always like especially if you're they were singing about something that wasn't about them. It was about I care about somebody else and I want other people to know what this is. I always thought that was a noble effort and I didn't know anything about the music business and all that, but I, I knew what I liked in terms of music and stuff like that and learning a lot for this podcast. And, and um, I have to make sure I say the right things on the podcast when I state facts. So I, I was looking at what the first amendment really fully entails and it's like freedom of religion, freedom to kind of create your own religion if you want and not get persecuted, freedom of assembly, freedom to petition government, but freedom of speech is obviously a huge one, and freedom of press. So those things is like kind of holds America together in a lot of ways. If you can't persecute a religion, you can't persecute the press, you can't tell people to shut up, that's huge. That's like, that's probably the envy of the world. Though it is pretty ironic that whenever it's a non-Christian religion that gathers or has people in one place right, yeah. sort of doing things. Right, yeah. It's like this threatening terroristic moment. And you're yeah. like, no, it's supposed to be all religions are mm-hmm. okay. That's yeah. what it says. Yeah. You it's know? really, ti- I get really tired with the xenophobia stuff. Cause it's like, it's just, it is it, dumb. <laughs> it's just dumb. It's ignorant and it's exhausting. It's when people book you and review you and, and, and mm-hmm. check you out, do they constantly guess like what you are and who you represent? Uh, no, but I do get like I didn't expect that to sound to come out of you, and I'm like, okay. But then like later, I'm like, that's weird. that's not a you wouldn't say that to everybody. Yeah. Um, I don't care about that shit, but like, like what would you expect to come out of me? <laughs> like Indian voice shaking my head like this. Um, no. Uh, but I mean. I don't blame people for thinking stuff like that, but just like, don't say, like, why use <laughs> Do you have that filter? Or do you not like understand that maybe that's like a little weird? Um, I don't blame, I mean, human thoughts are, you can't stop them, but you can stop your mouth. <laughs> You've had, you know, some, some moments, you know, 
in some pretty big rooms. Right? Yeah. You played Carnegie Hall. Mm-hmm. What was that like? That was great. Um, a blur. So I played Carnegie twice. One was like the real main room, and then they built a new room, which is beautiful. Um, I don't know how big that is, but it's not the the old, old Carnegie Hall. It's just right adjacent. But the time I played, they both sound beautiful. The time I played the old original Carnegie Hall, famous original Carnegie Hall, is um, a Prince tribute. And that was crazy because there's so many people, so many like, I don't know if you've been in one of those th- those rooms where it's like packed with like celebs. like, And I'm not in those rooms very often. It's been in there like three, t- three moments where there's like a show where celebs are abound. But this one was on steroids. This was like... Chris Rock was there, D'Angelo was there, uh, Elvis Costello, Booker T. Is that where you met Chris Cornell? No, uh, I met Chris on oh, later Holland. with Jules Holland. Right. Later with Jules Holland, Soundgarden was on, and I like we were talking about grunge. They were my literally my favorite band when I was fifteen um, or teenager, and they were on. They happened to be on the same show that I got on, and I was just like, I have to go say hello and I did it was nerve wracking to go do that because sometimes you meet your heroes and you shouldn't meet your heroes because they're not very nice but these guys were great and um, I'm glad I did and I hung out with them a little bit Chris was like recovering from alcoholism and, and things so he just left after the show but I hung out with the rest of the band who I was ecstatic to do <laughs> I was ecstatic to have a beer with them and then like nine months nine months later his people called my people and he was doing like a solo tour and he asked me to go out with him because on that show I played solo I played this song called Gutter Snipe and it's a it's like heavy guitar strumming uh, very rhythmic and and kind of a, about as big as my voice goes so it was definitely meant to impress and I guess Chris was impressed so he asked me out for that tour it's like a two and a half month tour North America for all his solo shows, and it was amazing. It was crazy. Um, I had never been that up close to somebody who was, like, that famous and how, like, life is like that, meaning you're almost in a prison. Mm. Not not that bad, but you you have to stay in lanes of life. You got a security team. So, yeah, he had a security guard always. And I don't blame him. People were weird. People got weird. Like, can I get that? Can I get some of Chris's like? Can you cut off a piece of Chris's hair? Like I'm like, dude, <laughs> not really. But can you bottle this saliva. <laughs> yeah. I just want some bottled sweat. Um, but yeah, people would ask weird things and kind of get invade space and stuff like that and get a little bit aggravated and crazy. So I was like, oh wow, I don't know if I would like. I would like to be like that famous. That seems like hard. Um, but he was. Always, he was chill about it. Always, um, he was always very nice. And um, did his fans dig your stuff? Yeah, I mean, I went out. <laughs> if they didn't, I, I made sure that they liked me at the end because I would uh, go out and play a song with him. And I, he asked me, "You sang like a stone with him, right?" I sang like a stone, a cu- like probably ten times, but like forty times we played Hunger Strike, mm. and that was amazing because I certainly learned that when I was fourteen years old on guitar that riff and there's the Eddie Vedder part which I would take and yeah it was like a dream come true it's crazy to even think about it. I haven't thought about that for a while but um I remember when I emailed him first about it, the song we were gonna play I was like he's gonna pick something off his solo record 
I don't want him to pick somebody off his solo record. <laughs> I don't want to have to like give me one of the hits. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I want to do a hit, and I don't want to have to learn something like from scratch. And I was like, please let it be this. And so I just was like, can we do Hunger Strike? Like I was just like, like you don't get what you don't ask for, or whatever. Right? How so, does the chorus of that go again? I'm going hungry. Oh, you want me to say? <laughs> I didn't do the high parts. He would belt, and he's like, yeah, it's crazy. Like that's some serious like man belting. Yeah. You know? I mean, he. A lot of people say I remind them of of Chris Cornell, and he was somebody I copied a lot when I was little or younger. What happened after that tour? Did you see something change for you, or or is it? Oh, for me, career wise. Yeah. Um, honestly, not really. <laughs> not a lot. I mean, you know, you know how that stuff goes. Like you're like, oh, this is this is gonna be big, and then the thing that you're like, oh, this is nothing. You're like, oh, that was actually big. Well, that's the problem with, I think, the opening slot syndrome where you're like, yeah, I mean, I'm in front of all these people and blah, blah, but those people are there for Chris. I'm right? the greatest opening act to ever live. And it's like, it's a pretty stark reality when you're like, no, 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 I'm going to see if those pe- any of those people will come and see me. I mean, some, maybe like but 10 of them, you know, yeah, it's like, some, but, you know, um, I definitely made fans. I'm not going to say I did like, but yeah, they're there. You go to a show, you want to see the guy, and it's hard to remember what the opener was like sometimes. When you, know? you were touring, were you mostly touring alone or with a little group? On that tour, I was solo. He wanted me solo. Like after that? Oh, I had a group. Yeah, I play. Uh, ideally, I'm playing with a trio or a quartet, and like drums, bass, keys, guitar. I mean, that's ideally how I, I, I would want to do it. I mean, the succession of my albums are... The first one's very Blood on the Tracks inspired, Dylan, and the second one was... That was just beaming the beaming, yeah. yeah. Very blood on the tracks inspired. Like even the tuning, like his guitar tuning on that album. I was like, I'm just gonna like learn some song, and I ended up doing gutter snipe with that one. Um, and is the song cookbook off that, or is that off cookbook? Cookbook which is, earlier? is off of that. Yeah, I named an album that is no longer in print called the Cookbook, but it didn't have that. Song. That that song. Like I played it a few times as I was cooking the other night, <laughs> and the the Luca Brazzi and me start our own brasserie. It was like, nice. I need to know what that brasserie <laughs> is all about. Do you get what the would joke? You be, what would you be serving? Do you get the joke? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you gotta like. Uh, yeah, that's Godfather. I was gonna say Goodfellas, but that's Godfather. Yeah, um, but yeah, that song is all about corruption and people landing in a white-collar jail and not having to really pay for their crimes for bankrupting their their employees. Of their Do you remember pension. the words of that verse? Uh, the brasserie thing? Yeah. Um, I'll be soaking it in, slic- slicing garlic so thin it liquefies in the pan. That's a straight up. <laughs> I mean, that's like, I, when I play that line. Brought I, to you by Cordon Bleu. <laughs> yeah, when, uh, but that's like Pauly Two Nuts or whatever for fucking, I don't know yeah. his name is from. Goodfellas and uh, or the Godfather is it Goodfellas? It's the mafia, you know, genre. Yeah, but they're like they're in a white collar jail. They get to make pasta sauce just the way they get wine. They have everything they they ever had and outside in outside of prison. Anyway, so I'm glad you like that line. But when I sing that line, a couple cackles usually pop out from the crowd, and then silence from the rest of the people. But a couple people really like it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I write that cookbook song. There's a couple songs like. I mean, it's it's pretty often where I take the first person of an evil person, and I find that to be embodying the antihero. Yeah, 
because... Why do you think you dig that so much? I don't know. I, I was talking to somebody else about that, and it's like something like an actor playing like a juicy, evil role. Sometimes it's fun. Like, you're just like, I can be deliciously evil or whatever the hell you want to talk say, call it. But um, it's fun. You can be mean, but it's tongue-in-cheek, so it's not hurting. Whatever. I don't know. I, you can be kind of like joyously nasty sometimes and tell absolute truths is what I love about it. I can be like, like I was, the, the song on this episode three of this, this podcast piece of mine is Eeny Meeny. It's about voter suppression. And I was like, it was like the last song I wrote on the record and it was kind of fast and it was just like, throw shit at the wall and see what sticks. And it's like kind of the most honest three minutes I've ever written. Like every line is true because I'm singing it from a somebody who's taking away somebody else's right to vote. So I'm I'm the person taking I get to enjoy all the all my time. I'm I'm comfortable. The people down there are not comfortable. That's kind of a I love taking that role for whatever reason. Um it's theatrical for sure, I feel. Um so that's helpful. And like authenticity like not, obviously it might not be authentic, but are you being authentic to yourself? And sometimes when I inhabit other people's character, I'm not, I'm not method acting or some shit like that. I'm like doing that, but a lot, half of it is like literally how I feel filtered through whatever lens I want to do. So it's like I get to put myself, my personality into it and my thoughts. I do have to craft it a certain way, but I don't think I'm like just playing a game or something. I'm not just like, I'm going to. Like I said, it's not like method acting or something like that. It's 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 maybe more of an exercise, I guess. More importantly, if you were to start a brasserie <laughs> with a, Sing Sing, a, yeah. a super villain of your choice, who mm. would it be? Ooh. Like Genghis Khan, Mongolian oh, Grove, wow. you know? <laughs> <laughs> the Genghis Khan from the only not the real Genghis Khan. I want Bill and Ted's Genghis Khan to open up an all-you-can-eat Mongolian barbecue slash brasserie, and it'll that. be terrible. I will never go, but I want that to happen. All right. <laughs> what is your go-to comfort food? Um, has anybody ever said nuts? <laughs> I'm asking you. I'm not asking anyone else. Um, no, nuts is not my Almonds? comfort food. Um, there's some Sri Lankan food, like dal, I guess it's, it's Indian, an Indian name in, in Sri Lanka. You call it something a little different, but dal is like lentils and rice or something like that. Just you, It makes you feel like, it makes me feel like somebody's cooking for me kind of sometimes and just memories. What was your mom's go-to uh, favorite dish? Mm. I remember making like fried chicken with her, like breading it, like... Sounds, it, you did grow up in Missouri. Yeah. I like toasted raviolis. Anybody goes to St. Louis, eat some toasted raviolis. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. I didn't realize it was a thing. It's a thing, yeah. Toasted raviolis. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Do they put like chili on it? No, this is what It's like a do. Cincinnati thing. I was like, no. the pasta with the chili That's on Cincinnati. it? That's like, Cincinnati. Why? I know all the regional cuisines of the Midwest. You got your Culver's in Wisconsin. That's just fast food. But um, no, in St. Louis, there's... Toasted ravioli, and I'll tell you what that is. It's like a regular ravioli, but they bread it, deep fry it to make it healthy, and then you dip it in marinara sauce. It's huh. kind of like a, what is it, like a mozzarella stick kind of breading. 
but it's a ravioli filled with beef or cheese, but usually like beef. I could be into that. It's so good. It's like game day, like I'm going to get so fat today food. But my mom's, I remember making, I remember cooking with my mom and like, you know, dipping the chicken and breading and all that stuff. Do you sing your new songs for your daughter? Does she does she get She them? tells me to shut up all the time. Not not she didn't tell me those words, but she's like, Daddy, no. Like, stop. Like, I play guitar. Like, all these things changed. Like, good eating, all these things. She's got I used an attitude to play. Now. Yeah. She's got an attitude. She's now. just like doesn't like it. Like, she'll get over it, but like she'll go to I can't bring her to a show. She'll she'll scream from the audience like something's wrong. Like I'm about to like spontaneously combust or something on, on because I'm on stage. She's like, no, like screaming at me to get down from stage. So we don't bring her around very much anymore. <laughs> well, hopefully she grows out of that. But it sucks. I want to be one of those. Like she maybe not. She's musical though. Like she'll come in here and we'll play drums and, and keyboard and stuff. Um, but she doesn't like hearing me play. I'm not. Is worth your shit. wife still impressed by your musical talent? Oh, she knows it's there, but she's not impressed. <laughs> because I feel like there's this, I always say there's the curse of the musician's girlfriend where they fall in love with you because you're pretty good. Yeah. And then they fall out of love with you because it's too much. <laughs> you know? You mean this is all you do and think about all the like, time? That song you played six months ago, I don't need to hear it again over and over again. But you don't like, know about shitting. But that's how it works. <laughs> like when we play a show, I have to play this song. Yeah. yeah. But Has your desire to tour changed a lot since you've had a kid? Oh, yeah. Quite a bit. I mean, I toured a lot the first three years of her life. Uh, one year has gone quite a bit more, but... Um, like how how many days? Half the year? Yeah. I mean, one year more than that. Uh, 2015 was more than that. That's when Rhythm and Reason, Reason came out? Yeah, yeah, so I was doing pushing that. And then... Um, but yeah, I just... That's it makes me kind of sad. Not even just like I'm sad, I'm missing my daughter. I, that obviously is a thing, but it also makes me sad, like I'm not around, and I don't know what that does to her. Like, yeah, like could you call her on the phone and would she know it was you? Oh yeah, I mean we could Facetime, but she doesn't sit still or whatever. That's not fulfilling for me. And yeah, uh, always. I mean, right? Sorry, I shouldn't say it like that. That's not fulfilling. But she just literally doesn't sit in front of the phone, so she'll like go run away. Um, but yeah, I miss her terribly when I'm on the road. But I have, I've been home a lot uh, these past couple of years, um, so I've definitely enjoyed that. It's, I feel like I'm not missing out on anything. Do you have kids? No. Yeah, I, I mean, when you're gone, you it's easy because you don't take care of a kid. Like I wake up at 11 p.m. or 11 a.m. or whatever. You know, I get go to bed late, get up late, and I could drink if I wanted to or whatever. But when you're home, it's like, it's work, first of all. You got to, like, take care of the kid. It's, like, twenty low-grade work for 24 hours a day. Um, do you have to do other things to keep your brain active when you're not playing music all the time? Uh, I don't really, like, think about that, really. Um, I read I read the news and stuff like that. Um so I can I keep up my literacy skills. Some sides, some side hustles. <laughs> Everyone's got side hustles. I, I I mean I have some irons in the fire I guess, but um, 
one's actually like writing something like a script sort of thing, but I don't, it's it's pretty infant stage. But um, yeah. Well, it takes a lot of I think understanding and support from a significant other. Yeah. When no, my you're an artist, amazing, yeah. and you know that your your income as a supposed breadwinner is super fluctuating. Yeah. You know. It sucks sometimes, yeah. Yeah, and it's like it's daunting. It's also kind of like emasculating because you're like, yeah, yeah I don't know what's happening in th- <laughs> for three months, you know? Yeah. And you don't really want to like, well, should I look into this or that? Because you're in mind after a certain point. You're like, I'm an artist. <laughs> I'm a creator. This is what I do. No way I'm going back, bro. No, but it's like. Yeah, no, I get you. But it's also like nobody wants to talk about it. Yeah. Really, no, I know? remember when I was like, I was on tour opening for uh, a band I won't say who it is but uh, I was like and it was wrapping up the tour and, I, and they're like what are you gonna do and I was like oh probably just go home I think I'm gonna start driving Lyft or something and then like the room went like kind of like silent for yeah. me and I was like it's not a big deal I yeah. <laughs> like what do you have like a gambling debt <laughs> well, it's, well it, I didn't know things were so bad but no it's like people think like well we're out there so we must be like making it yeah it's, you know? and it's like I've, I've heard Lots of, I mean, there's like the people who are famous aren't always rich. The people who are rich aren't famous. It's like the world is complicated. It's like every everybody's life is, everybody's working at it day by day. And, um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Nobody talks about it. All right. We're going to do a little creative <laughs> exercise. Okay. I want you to think of the first thing that comes to your mind mm-hmm. when I say lustful. Um, Trump. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, he is dominating our minds these days. <laughs> I can't Not think. in that way. Trump is going to be my next three answers, by the way. Silence. Golden. That's corny. Everybody says that shit. Nocturnal emission. <laughs> Teenager. Heart attack. Death. Broken. Fix. Where are you? Uh, are you playing anywhere coming up? I have shows in April, uh, April seventeenth through twentieth on the East Coast, New York, DC, and Boston. Um, and uh, New York is at Rockwood Hall Two, number two. Uh, if it's anybody a fun knows room. It. yeah. And then uh, two new rooms I've never been is um, City Winery in Boston and DC. We just played that a couple weeks ago. Oh, yeah. that's fun. Cool. And this eight-song concept album mm-hmm. that is on the Peace of Mind podcast, yeah. Critical Frequency. Yeah. I'm just going to plug everything for yeah, you. Um, when is all of that going to be out like on Spotify to listen to? So um, each week, we're, today is a, uh, episode three dropped uh, on a Friday. So each week we release the single from the podcast along with it. And then by the end of the series... The full album is released on March 22nd, uh, to, but the singles will add up, and by the end of it, it'll, it'll all be there. Um, and um, yeah, check it out, and hope you like this interview, but I hope you like my podcast as well if you check that out. It's really cool. I've been really digging it. If you could interview anyone dead or alive for your podcast, who would it be? Well, there's two people. One's living. I really wanted to get this dude, Ai Weiwei. Have you ever heard of him? Yeah, he's like a political artist from China, and he's a dissent, a dissenting voice within China against the government, not just like for certain things that have happened. Um, 
and so I, I I really did want to get him for this, and I was like trying to get a hold of him, but that didn't work out yet. Yet, um, dead. Um, there's a painter from Mexico. Um, a con- I think he's a t- contemporary of like Frida Kahlo and, and uh, Diego Rivera. But his name was Juan Paul Orozco. Mm. Uh, he's like a mural artist, and I do know his last name is Orozco. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. O R O S C O or Z C O. Anyway, um, great, amazing artist. He did murals in Mexico City at the Capitol buildings. You can check them out. They're crazy expansive, very political. Uh, but at the same time, just pop art. In, uh, uh, it's kind of like folk art. And mm. It's political because it has to do with things that are people are dealing with, but it's not like it's, it's, it's a full breadth of like a bat. It's basically like a scene of a battle for the soul of Mexico, and it's kind of just breathtakingly beautiful. Uh, so I'd love to, I would love to interview him, but he's passed away. If Bob Dylan showed up in the studio right now, what would you ask him? Mm. Do you still experience joy, Bob Dylan? Hmm. That's what I would kind of ask him. All right. Honestly. I mean, that's fucked up sounding, but he doesn't seem very joyful. I mean, he keeps putting out work like yeah. crazy. And he tours, but he doesn't yeah. seem like he is enjoying it. Maybe. Seems like he needs to make money. Like the work is the joy, maybe. He's maybe. just like a working stiff yeah. like this is his job yeah yeah no there's there's that and the blue collar thing for him for sure i don't know what's called sweet i think we should play a song now <laughs> okay i'll try a song I'll try one what's it called it's a new one it's off the new album it's not released but yet um it will be in a few weeks called giant it's called giant and it's technically about gender inequality and um it's about experiences with my mom and my wife and just thinking about my daughter and stuff like that so and just uh, kind of the glass ceiling and breaking through that and that kind of that kind of a thing awesome She's a giant, a giant among men. There's no denying she deserved it more than him. The thieves and tyrants.
Well, she's a giant, a giant among men. There's no denying she deserved it more than him. Hey, Take a swing Lay down your armor And let it float downstream
thieves and tyrants have come to kiss the ring. Jiu-Jitsu fighter in the boxing ring. And I've slayed some monsters But I've never killed a king Big thanks to Mr. Beeman for having me over. And you can uh, go to his website, Beeman.com. That's B-H-I-M-A-N.com for his music and his tour dates. And uh, check out Peace of Mind, his podcast that talks to authors and scientists and writers each week about a different topic. And each week you get a new song of his new record. It's pretty unique, so check it out. In case you were wondering, the Dust Bowl Revival is starting to record our new record. That's happening in March. Very exciting. And uh, we will be celebrating by rolling all over California, playing the music of the band for the 50th anniversary of their first few records. So check that out, dustbowlrevival.com. The show on the road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. If you love the show on the road, please leave us a review or rating over at itunes.com slash show on the road. Tell your friends. The show on the road is a part of the BGS podcast network. This is Zach Lupiton. See you on the trail.